Good morning. My name is Jason Schubert. Uh, I'm another one of the elders here at Harbor. Uh, we've had a rough weekend at our house, so excuse my voice. Um, hopefully, I stay standing through this. So as we uh, as we start and uh, as I pray later, would you please pray with me for strength um, this morning? Uh, we've been working our way through the, the books of First and Second Samuel. And in, uh, in these books, uh, uh, God has been seeking to work in the hearts and the minds of his people so that we would anticipate the coming of his king and the coming of the kingdom and be prepared for the coming of our king and the coming of our kingdom. Um, uh, but what we're going to see this week is that an, an aspect of that preparation and the work that God is seeking to do in his people is to orient our pers- perspective rightly. Our perspective on, uh, on uh, the establishment of the kingdom, our, our perspective on our king's rule, and our perspective on our lives as citizens of that kingdom and seeing that, uh, that all of those things should be oriented around the practice of righteousness and justice. So if you would, look with me in uh, 2 Samuel. It's, uh, we're in chapter 4 this morning. Um, if you're following along there in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 257. We're going to look at the uh, the whole chapter this morning. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Ba'anah, and the other, and the name of the other was Rakab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to uh, Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And she fled in her haste. He fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Ramon the Berethite, Rechab and Ba'anah, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Yahweh has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, as Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, I thought he was bringing good news. Or, and, and he thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. 
which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to figure out uh, life in your world on our own. We thank you that you haven't left us without revelation of the truth and of yourself, both seeing uh, evidence and proof of you and your creation, but especially how you've revealed yourself to us in your word, how you've spoken to your people through the prophets, how you've spoken to us supremely through your Son. We pray this morning uh, as, as your kingdom citizens that, that we would hear the voice of our King, that our hearts would be drawn to Him and pointed to Him, and that you would prepare us to live lives for Him as we await the coming of His kingdom. Uh, give me strength this morning. God, my words, may it be Christ who is exalted and glorified. In His name we pray. Amen. So our perspective on the kingdom, on the king, and on the citizens of the kingdom um, are to be oriented um, and characterized by righteousness and justice. First, let's, let's look and see how this passage shows us that, that God's kingdom is to be established by righteousness and justice. Remember where this chapter comes in uh, what we've seen thus far in, uh, in the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of, uh, of 2 Samuel. Uh, the, the, the author has been seeking to show us how David has been innocent with respect to the death of Saul and Jonathan, uh, with respect to Abner's death, and now here seeking to show us that David is innocent of the death of Ishbosheth. Uh, we are to, to see here that, that, that the establishment of God's kingdom, because remember, David is God's anointed one, the chosen one, uh, appointed by God to lead his people and to establish his kingdom in opposition to, well, to Saul, which was the king that God gave the people that they wanted from their own heart to be like the nations. We see that, that here, the author in the telling of this is seeking to show us and point us that in the establishment of this kingdom, the kingdom of God is going to be and must be established in righteousness and justice and distancing the king as far from that as possible in the, the establishment of this kingdom. Notice how uh, even further he does that in this, in this chapter. Notice there in verse 2, Now Saul's son had two men who were the captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Ramon, and a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. 
For Beeroth is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. The author wants us to know that these men have no connection to Judah. They have no connection to David. They are from Benjamin. You must understand this, he says. For we see it. He mentions it in verse 2. He mentions it in verse 3. He picks up and lets us know again in verse 5 that they're from Beeroth. Again in verse 9 that they're from Beeroth. Why? To distance their actions in seeking to establish David's kingdom from David himself. Because God's kingdom must be established in righteousness and justice. And we see uh, that David's response here as he looks upon their actions is, and and it makes sense that establishing God's kingdom through the means of unrighteousness and injustice, that's not necessary. We don't need to resort to the ways and the tools of the world. Why? Look at what David points us to. Over in verse 9, when news of what they've done has been reported to David, he says in verse 9, David answered Rechab and Ba'anah his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, as Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. David says there's no need to resort to unrighteousness. There's no need to resort to injustice because we have a covenant God who keeps His promises, who is faithful, and who will bring about everything that He has promised to me and to His people. We do not need to seek to establish the kingdom in this way. Because we've got to remember, we saw this from last week with Abner. It's not in men's power or strength to be able to establish the kingdom ourselves anyway. David is saying we look to our covenant God. And David even here is reflecting on all historically how God has proven himself faithful in his life in delivering him. If he's delivered me. Remember, we've heard him say it from the Paul the lion from the Paul of the bear, from Goliath, from Saul, what? from the Philistines, even in my foolishness, God has delivered me and provided. My foolishness and my sin couldn't distort the promises of God. And here I stand. This kingdom will be established, but it will be established by our covenant God. And it will be and must be established through righteousness and justice. This will not be the last time that the king of God's kingdom is tempted or tested to seek to bring about the kingdom through unrighteous means. Jesus, the, the, the one that we'll see later in 2 Samuel, uh, David is promised that there will be one who rules on his throne forever. That, the, the New Testament is clear, is Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus, as he begins his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness. He's fasting for 40 days, and Satan, the adversary, the tempter, comes and seeks to tempt Jesus by causing him to question God's provision. You're hungry? 
don't think God will provide for you. Why don't you go ahead and turn this, these rocks into bread? You, don't, you really believe God will, will protect you? Let's put him to the test. Let's see if he really will deliver you, king. Throw yourself off of this cliff and let's see if he will deliver you from this adversity and this trial. You know what? The path to the kingdom is going to be hard and difficult. Let me tell you the easy way, and this is it. Bow down to me right now and worship me, and all of this will be yours. And in each and every situation and circumstance, and in in Satan's attempt to tempt Jesus, Jesus says, no, I will rely and trust in my God and his character and his promises and his purposes for me. And that is at the heart of what righteousness is. Walking in faith and trust with our God in accordance with his word and how he's revealed himself. And we see that Jesus is not tempted to distort the establishment of the kingdom through any way, but through the path of righteousness and justice. That brings up a question note. Because part of justice involves the, the, the just punishment of sinners. And we have to think part of the message of the good news of the gospel is that God forgives guilty sinners and rebels. And the way that we enter into the kingdom is through the forgiveness of the king. Is he open to the charge there of unrighteousness? Is he open there to the charge of injustice? That he would forgive guilty people like you and me to establish and expand and grow his kingdom? No. Because the kingdom is established in righteousness and justice because it's the kingdom of our God and of his Christ who are the perfect, righteous, and just ones. Listen to how Paul answers this charge in Romans chapter 9. I mean, sorry, Romans chapter 3. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who is put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The kingdom of our God is established by righteousness because Jesus is the righteous one. And it was his death that 
provided the way as His righteousness was accounted to those who put their faith in Him, that we are brought into the kingdom. He takes the just punishment we deserve and we enter in on His merit. Therefore, the righteousness of God is demonstrated in the establishment of His kingdom and His justice is maintained because the penalty for sin was paid by Jesus Himself on our behalf. What an incredible God we serve. To, to think that this grace is on offer to us and that we can experience and enter in those who are unrighteous, those who regularly commit injustice can be brought into a kingdom that is established only in righteousness and justice. But it's not just God's kingdom that is established through righteousness and justice. We see that God's king rules by righteousness and justice. First, we see, again, as David is seeking the, the establishment and longing for and anticipating the establishment of the kingdom that God has promised to him, he, he points to the heart of how he will rule in righteousness by trusting in his God, not resorting to unrighteousness. Again, we see that as we look back at his statement. I'm not going to go the path and I will not rule my kingdom the way that the world rules and the way that you, Rechab and Ba'ana, have gone. For as Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, I'm going to trust and rely on him. And the heart of the way that I rule and lead and direct my people will be centered on my trust of my God. It will be rooted in righteousness. And notice how David distinguishes that heart of righteousness, of trusting and relying and walking in conformity with God's revealed will to the way that Bana and Rechab have responded. He points out several, uh, several times, or just look in verse 11. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Here, the, the description of uh, Rechab and his brother, are, they described as wicked men. Why? They disregarded the promises of God. They disregarded the revealed will of God and sinned against his law and have killed an innocent man, David is saying. Now, remember, uh, Ishbosheth was the, the king of, uh, of an, uh, an opposing kingdom. He's not declaring and saying here that Ishbosheth, in his role as king, was righteous. What he's saying is this guy was innocent in respect to this murder. He snuck into his house while he was sleeping. He was alone on his bed, and you assassinated him. And you had no right or authority from God or a command to do that. David says, the way that as the king I will rule my people is with righteousness, but also notice it's with justice. As David says, there in uh, verse uh, 10, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more 
When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. We might think at first, whoa, whoa, what, I mean, what's going on? I mean, you're chopping people up. You're cutting off extremities and you're hanging them up for people to see. How in the world can this be characterized by righteousness and justice? But here's what we have to understand. That David has been put in this place by God himself to rule over God's people and to administer justice and consequences according to God's law. Listen to what? How God revealed this back in Genesis even. In chapter 9, beginning in verse 5. This is after uh, the, the flood and how after God had delivered Noah and his family from that just punishment. God says this, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Here, David, as the leader of God's people appointed by God, is administering God's justice according to his revealed will. These men have wrongly taken a life. And notice, again, what David says using very similar language and concepts. He said, shall I not now require his blood at your hand? David is carrying out and following uh, and leading God's people according to his law. But it's interesting here. David here is ruling with righteousness and justice. But what have we seen about the character of David? He doesn't do that perfectly. Remember, we just heard about two other brothers in the previous chapter, who unjustly took a life, Joab and Abishai. And what was David's response there? He cursed them. He, he spoke about how what they did was wrong, but he withheld ruling with justice in that moment. Was it because they benefited him and they were great and powerful warriors? We don't know. We have the comment David makes at the end of chapter 4 that says, These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. Yahweh repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. It's a sense in which he's saying, Well, they're stronger than I am at the moment, and so I'm not going to do anything about it. And we're going to see David's failure to engage and being consistent in ruling with righteousness and justice becomes a part of the downfall and the struggles that he experiences in his kingdom. And what it does, though, is it leaves us seeing and longing and seeing the necessity for a king that will rule God's people perfectly with righteousness and justice. And in fact, God foretells that. 
over in Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 23 God speaks and tells his people of this righteous king who is coming behold the days are coming declares Yahweh when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. God is saying, look, David failed. But I'm not done with my promises. I will raise up a righteous branch, a descendant, an heir from David, who will perfectly and always rule with righteousness and justice in his kingdom. And so much so that he will provide the way of salvation for all of his people because he will be the one who gives his righteousness to his people. Jesus of Nazareth is Yahweh in the flesh who has come to rule and reign over his people in true and perfect righteousness and true justice. But what that means, though, is that we've already seen how Jesus' justice is demonstrated in the way that sinners are saved and brought into his kingdom. But also the scriptures are clear that just like David exercises and rules with justice, In chapter 4, Jesus will do that ultimately for everyone who has existed on this planet. Look over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, and listen to this description of the actions of Jesus of Nazareth. He will appear in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Jesus will establish his kingdom. And for those who who submit to him and who trust and rely and look to his life, his death, his resurrection, who acknowledge that Jesus is my righteousness. It's not my works. Who obey the gospel, the announcement that Jesus rules and reigns and you don't. He has come to deliver and save sinners. Your only hope is in him. Turn to him. Jesus will deliver and save. But hear this warning that just as David enacted righteous justice 
on those who rebelled against the commands of our God, when Jesus comes back, he will enact justice on those who are not trusting and hoping in him. We've seen this before and hear that today as evidence of God's grace and his patience and his forbearance to you if you are not resting in Christ now. That the offer still stands and you can enter into the kingdom of this righteous and just God. Not according to anything you've done, but through him, the righteous and just one. God's kingdom is established in righteousness and justice. God's king rules in righteousness and justice. And lastly, God's kingdom citizens live by righteousness and justice. It seemed a little crazy and disturbing what David does with the bodies of these men. In verse 12, David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. Why would, why would David do such a thing? This type of punishment was common at that time because they used their hands to murder Ishbosheth. Their hands were removed because their feet were what carried them and brought them to deliver this news and boasting of their sin to the king, their feet were removed. And they're hung up. Why? Because the king wants to communicate a message to his people. I'm the king and the ruler. And these types of actions I do not approve of. This will never characterize the people who are citizens of my kingdom. Look at these men as an example and learn from it because here you see and recognize what the king hates. And citizens of the kingdom will want to orient their hearts to be in line with the king, hating what the king hates, injustice and, and unrighteousness, and loving what the king loves. Loving righteousness, loving justice, and living it out in our lives. But how do we, how do, we do that? Again, back over in Second Thessalonians. Picking up in verse 10. Paul had just told us about how Jesus is going to come and bring justice on those who uh, continue to rebel against him. And in verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So one thing that Paul is pointing to is that for some, the return of Jesus will be a scary thing. But for others, it'll be a marvelous and beautiful sight because their Redeemer, their Savior, their King is coming. He says, to this end, we pray for you that Jesus will be glorified in you is what he's talking about. That our God may make you worthy of his calling or in other words, to live as citizens of the kingdom of Christ and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. 
so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where's the power going to come to carry out our desires to do good, to do righteousness and to practice justice? It comes from the power of our God. It comes to us through his grace bestowed upon us by our righteous King Jesus. We cannot live out the Christian life in our own strength. So what this calls us to do is we recognize what our King loves and we also see what our King hates. That should call and move us to pray to our King and to our God to strengthen us that we would live lives that reflect Him in the world, that bring glory to Him, not dishonor, that would enable us to live righteous and just lives so that we reflect the values of our king as we are living as citizens of his kingdom. Something else, though, we need to think about is, remember, Rakab and Ba'ana, what were they trying to do? As potential citizens of David's kingdom, they were seeking to establish his kingdom, and they sought to do it wrongly. Something for us to consider as God's people. What does it look like as citizens of God's kingdom for us to seek the kingdom with righteousness and justice? First off, remember, we don't establish the kingdom. That is God's role. And that is what God does through his king. But as citizens... We can help to grow the kingdom. We can bring people into the kingdom. First, as God's people, one of the things that we are called to is to proclaim the goodness and the glory of our righteous and just king and invite others to come and know him and enter into his kingdom. That's what evangelism is. The scriptures call that a mercy given to God's people that we would be able to announce and proclaim and for us to walk in trusting in our God, to walk in righteousness would mean to proclaim the goodness and the excellency and to tell others about our King. But uh, another thing that we need to guard against, though, is, uh, is uh, just, uh, like Rakab and Ba'ana, is to, to seek ways of of growing or expanding or establishing the kingdom uh, according to the the way that the world operates. Through violence they sought, through their own strength and own power. Uh, This is working there with the the political schemes of the world. And we as God's people need to be need to be cautious that we don't seek and think that we can establish the kingdom or grow the kingdom through political maneuvers like our world seeks to grow their kingdoms. That's the way that God expands and grows his his kingdom is through his own work. Remember, due to the, the work of Jesus who rules and reigns over all things, God's people are now a, a multinational people. All governments are God's government, but no nation is God's chosen nation. It's the people of God, every tribe, tongue, and nation that are his people. And the kingdom will grow as more people are brought in and embrace and have faith in Christ. Now, what we should do, though, 
is seek to bring kingdom principles to bear where we are able to do that. And to, as God's citizens, demonstrate the glory and goodness of his king. One way we can do that in our culture is through our participation in politics. As long as we understand that that isn't establishing the kingdom, but we can reflect the values of our king and what we seek to bring about in our country. Rules and laws that reflect righteousness and justice. As we're able and can do that, we should pursue those things because ultimately what will it lead to? A better life for all of the citizens in our, in our community. Because a life lived in conformity with the scriptures is ultimately what leads to fullness of life before our God. We need to make sure that as we participate in those things in our world that we're doing in a way that is distinctly Christian. Not with violence, uh, physical violence or verbal violence. It seems to be more common these days. We're Christians. We seem to want to take, a play, take pages out of the playbook of the world as we engage and interact in politics instead of taking our marching orders from our king and engaging in those means in a way that reflects his glory and that we show, I'm participating in the, the, uh, the, what's going on in our world, but I'm doing so in a way that reflects my kingdom. We see Nehemiah doing that in the Old Testament. We see Paul using the political opportunities he had of his day to promote and lead to the furthering of his life and the life of others. But again, as Christ's people, we should live as citizens of his kingdom in everything that we do, political, family, school, so that we demonstrate and show the glory of our God and the glory of our king. And this is the good news, because the kingdom we're talking about is the kingdom of our Savior and our Creator. And as we hope and trust in Christ, we are brought in by his grace and his mercy. You see, the kingdom of our God will be established and is established by righteousness and justice. Our king will forever rule with righteousness and justice. And we, as his citizens, must live lives that reflect his righteousness and his justice in everything that we do for the glory and praise of his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to be called your sons, to be citizens of your long-promised kingdom. We pray that our heart's desire would be to live as our king lived, to love what our king loves, to hate what our king hates. We pray that you would be glorified in us and that you would use this passage of Scripture this morning uh, to further your purposes in, uh, in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.